remembering when time was of no consequence. I'm 30 years old today and I wonder if my wish will come true now that she's gone. When I was three, my mother told me my father's heart had stopped working and we couldn't go back to our home to live for a while. When I was six, my mother met a man I liked a lot. I even offered to pay her five dollars if she would marry him. No matter how tired he was on a Saturday morning, he would get up early and color with me. He was always telling me smart things about people and living. But this story isn't really about the only man who was ever a dad to me. It's about his grandmama and me. You see, when I was seven or eight, I asked if he was God's best friend, and was that why he was so smart and always seemed to know just what to say, since he had never had any children of his own. Smiling, he joked that I had given him a rush-up crash course in parenting, but finally he admitted he had a secret well of wisdom that he would take me to on my tenth birthday. Nothing I could do would ever make him give me a ninth birthday hint or make my tenth birthday arrive a year or two earlier. But finally, I dashed headlong, squealing into the day before Halloween 1985. I was finally in the double digits, ten at long last, and off we went on a mysterious subway ride that in many ways I am still on, traveling around the world, still searching to see if it was more than than just a story for my journal or the memory of an ancient woman under a tree in the Bronx. Her house was simple, but an extremely large flowing breeze of paintings, mirrors, sculptures, Brahms and Mahler, windows and bellowing shears and squirrels, white ones, everywhere. When we arrived at the back veranda, all of Riverdale lay before us like a painting Monet had hidden away for special admirers, and there in the midst of it sat the well of wisdom. He told me she was 90. At 10, I couldn't possibly imagine anyone over 50 years old. Even my grandparents were in their 60s, and it seemed to me they could hardly see or hear. As we got closer and closer to the chair under the tree, I put my hand in his. I admit I was a little afraid of Norman's mom from Cycle suddenly turning in her basement chair to greet us. But she didn't. Maybe she's deaf, I thought, making my heart pound even more. Then suddenly the wind sang through the branches above us, and the sound of a voice from the chair filled in the harmony. Without the slightest glance in our direction, she whispered, What a lovely great-granddaughter you will be when you're thirty. He stopped walking and allowed my hand to slip from his, as if the last few steps were a test of courage I had to manage on my own. I was nonetheless drawn to her, unaware of anything but the wind in her long gray hair and in the tree limbs above us. Just before I stepped around in front of her, she whispered, My, my, but you are tall for ten. Seeing her face come into view ever so slowly with each tiny step I made, more hesitantly now, I was overcome. Although she was the oldest human being I had ever seen in my life, her smile, dancing eyes, flowing hair, and then gentle touch made me feel instantly, this is what I want to be like when I grow up. I mean, after I get old, really old. 
Every move of her hands or glance of her eyes was as much poetry as a spring sunset and as refreshing as the first sounds of fall. I finally managed to stop staring and squeeze out, Hello, my name is... She joined in as we whispered my name in gentle chorus. Instantly I knew this could be unlike any other birthday. I looked away for a moment, not certain what to say next, but all I saw was white squirrels dancing about. He had disappeared into the house, I suppose. She brought me back with, So here we are, two birthday girls. It was her ninetieth, and my tenth, and still I had no idea how connected we would be for the rest of my life. Shall we dance to celebrate our new year of life together, she teased. My silent reaction seemed to delight her, for after she laughed ever so softly, she proclaimed, Oh yes, I can still dance whenever I want. Then gently tapping her right temple, she added, Right here. There were many beautiful stories on every birthday visit for the next nine years, and then she was one hundred, and I twenty. It was the last birthday we spent together, and the memories of it propel me still, always forward, searching for her secret place, and always inward, to all the love and humanity with which she knitted my heart and mind and soul together, as forever united with her own. Happy one hundredth, I beamed, arriving at her chair under the tree. It will be now, she said, smiling warmer than ever. Then announcing that today is a most special birthday for you, my dear. So special because now I can give you a gift I have been saving for you since October 30th, 1975. Even at twenty, I couldn't help but tingle in anticipation, as was all too obvious to the lady who had become, in more ways than I was capable of imagining then, my great-grandmama. My dear, she beckoned, come closer than ever before. You must listen with more than your ears, she instructed. Then she launched into what would become the motivation of all my summer travels and explorations of discovery of who I am. It was the birthday of my life, she began, in a time before our world was a house divided against itself, before blue and red states, before fear replaced wisdom in our reasoning, before the poetry of communion and the harmony of communication were replaced by notes of discord, before war became a right of might. There was a time so long ago that it was before time was even noticed, and in this time there was freedom and love and peace between all people near and far. It was the time of human nature. In this time before time was of any consequence, there was a precious miracle high in the secret hills surrounded by the flowing green of nature's greatest forest. It was the great forest country of the Chosen Ones. Sadly, like many such civilizations in time, the miracle was taken for granted and little by little allowed to slip away in the chilling wind of winter. So tarnished it became that Mother Nature herself decided it was time to do what you might call a makeover, and soon the great forest and its chosen ones were no more. 
After twice as many years as I am old today, a young prince, the seventh in his family, set out in the great unknown beyond his father's kingdom to find his own path in the world and perhaps create his own kingdom. Like the great princes of the Old Testament, he was followed by many loyal to him who wished to marry their hopes and dreams to his own. Many of the finest craftsmen and artists had elected to follow the seventh prince on his journey of discovery, but none so important to him as the beautiful woodcarver's daughter. For over a year they searched for what only the prince knew, until one day they realized they were in the midst of a great dead forest, where birds no longer sang and deer no longer grazed with their fawns, where nothing of color or life could be seen. Even the great bears who walk the earth never ventured there. Shocking all who were with him except the lovely woodcarver's daughter, the seventh prince issues his first proclamation. Here in this place of death we will bring new life and hope. Here we will build a new country of laws, equality, and freedom. Let us begin with a giant circle of trees to unite and protect us, but always leaving room for new life to grow. Now, a year later, high on a hill at sunset, the Prince Ingvar pledged his love forever to the woodcarver's daughter and asked for her hand in marriage. She agreed to be the prince's bride. From such a vantage point and after a long, intense gaze into the deep brown eyes of his bride-to-be, the prince was struck with another great idea, something that would be his second important venture of this day. He told his darling in the warm sunset of a proclamation he would make on the morrow. Soon after the sunrise the next morning, people began to gather to work, only to see the young prince waiting for them at the unfinished gate. As the giant circle of trees nears its completion, I, your prince, proclaim, our new country should be a republic, where all creatures on earth, human or otherwise, be treated with respect and extended equal privileges in their time here on earth. This, he explained, meant that all the animals, bird, fish, trees, mountains, lakes, everything of earth and on earth would be granted the same status as human life. It will be called the Republic of Reason, and the first ceremony to dedicate the great gate to our new republic will be my marriage to the beautiful woodcarver's daughter, Elise. All in the town cheered the wonderful wedding news and began to decide just who would be best to sit and deliberate the future of their infant republic. Soon it was decided that the seventh prince should be elected the first king of the Republic of Reason. So it was written and so it was done by majority vote. All but one. As a wedding present, the woodcarver personally placed the grand finishing touch to the great gate of the Republic, an elaborately ornamented ark of freedom filled with the lifelike carvings from all of nature. It was now ready for the new king's dedication and marriage to his daughter. And so with the beginning of so many dreams and memories of love, joy, freedom, and harmony with each other and all of nature, 
as the natural cycle of birth and departure continued, it finally came to pass that the needs of the citizens outgrew the grand 100-year-old wooden gate to the Republic, or so the new government said, especially the head of tourism and real estate development, the descendant, by the way, of the only vote against the original king. So with only six months before the 100th anniversary of the great gate of the Republic of Reason, the new young king was approached by a committee of the whole, strongly insisting on the demolition of the great gate and the hundred-year-old ark under which his great-great-grandparents were married. A new larger gate of steel, iron, and brick is needed to attract wealthier tourists and their large carriages and the equipment needed to develop the natural resources of our great forest. It is time to ally ourselves with the powers across the great water to the west, and such a new massive gate will need to be armed with devices and guards to record all who enter or leave and when, for our own protection, warn the tourists tourism director before an assembly of the king and the committee of the whole. The new king is very young, but wisdom reigns in his genes. He requests a 48-hour period of national contemplation to entertain how such a change in their history can accommodate their future while respecting their past. All save the chairman of tourism and real estate development agree that this is a reasonable approach to such an undertaking. So it is thus decreed throughout the land, all all citizens of the Republic of Reason are asked to send the young king their very highest and best thoughts and feelings for his response to the government. Ascending the very hill where his great-great-grandfather proposed marriage to his great-great-grandmother, and where first the idea of a republic was born in the mind of his ancestor King Ingvar, he wished just a little that the idea of a republic had never been born. Still knowing that life is change, and without change life becomes death, he kneels facing the setting sun and searching both the heavens and his heart, knowing before the next sunset he must find the answer to all answers. It is for this that he was born to be king. descends the special hilltop of his ancestors and is greeted by thousands of citizens of reason who anxiously await his answer to the government proposal. All wonder if he can convince the committee of the whole of any alternative plan. Finally, when all are silent, the young king speaks with the clarity and wisdom of his forefathers. Our ancient great gate will not be demolished, for its significance to our history as a people can never be replaced. It shall stand always as a reminder of the strength and faith of those who saw life where there was only death, and who long before us provided a place on this planet just for us. When the director of tourism and real estate development stepped forward to protest, the young king with a raised hand continued. 
we will seal the great gate for all time and preserve it as it has served us for one hundred years and simultaneously we will build an even larger modern gate on the opposite side of our encircled republic this new gate on our northern border will welcome in our ever-increasing growth development and future citizens with great celebration the people so hailed the great wisdom of the young king that no one could hear the agitated discussion that the director of tourism and real estate development was having with the committee of the whole. By the time the crowd of proud citizens began to settle, young King Torben was continuing with tremendous oratory, describing how the new gate would be heralded into the fabric of their great civilization. On the anniversary date of our republic, he began, we will celebrate both the old and new gates with pageantry of dancers and parades of all our citizens, both human and animal, all accompanied by concerts of nature's best singers and the finest instrumentalists from across the great water. On this day every year, our new gate will open to all who wish to become citizens of the Republic of Reason. It will be declared a day of welcome and sharing with the world, and all all who enter will be joined by us in a procession of world peace and prosperity. From our regions in the East will come the great scholars and educators of our university to poetically pen a recording of this new expansion of our harmonious open society. And from our Western regions will come the great artists and craftsmen who will, in stone and on canvas, emulate the happiness and joy proclaimed by each anniversary celebration. From our new North Gate, all new arrivals will be greeted by citizens of reason who will escort them through seven days of parades and celebration to the great old southern gate where all our spiritual leaders will gather to bless each and every one of us with the very highest and best oneness with all of nature and with only good things and happy times and in honor of our past on this same day every year all who wish to marry or renew their vows will be invited to do so under the ark of freedom of our old southern gate as the entire republic was already preparing for the upcoming 100-year anniversary of the old gate, the young king's plans could be brought to life with perfect timing, just in time for the traditional anniversary. But the king had one more surprise announcement. And now, I give you the crowning jewel of the expansion and ever greater observance of our beginnings, a new royal wedding. For more than a year now, I have loved in secret one who walks among us in serene beauty. I now propose that in six months, on the anniversary of its first wedding, we seal the grand old southern gate with a new anointment of blissful love that recalls its coronation as the gateway of our land of freedom and harmony. If she will but join me in sharing the secret of our love for one another, I will ask the daughter of of our esteemed Director of Tourism and Real Estate Development to join me in holy wedlock on the very spot that our nation's founders sealed our future with a loving kiss. Elise, will you marry your king and be queen of our republic? Well, before the flushed, shy Elise could even respond, her eyes revealed the truth of her love. However, 
As she began to take a timid step toward the young king, her father, the director of tourism and real estate development, lunged forward to block her way. Then reeling toward the king, he opened his mouth to roar his objections. But just then, Mother Nature once again intervened in the great forest country of the Chosen Ones. Suddenly, white squirrels appeared. There must have been a hundred of them. Children terrified their parents by running to pet them. Parents grabbing their children who screamed in disappointment retreated in shock over the sight of so many squirrels of any color in one place. All the white squirrels seemed to be coming from around, above, and even under the old southern gate behind the startled king. Immediately, the committee of the holes scurried away, and even the director of tourism and real estate development was speechless, for now the white squirrels were surrounding the director and separating him from his daughter, while Elise was being gently herded by the little darlings to the side of the king, a number of the bushy-tailed arrivals were running up and down the director's body, forcing him to back away and finally fall to the ground. Many citizens began to observe as they allowed their children to slip away from their protection for a closer peek at the awesome sight that once in the arms of her king, the white squirrels proceeded to encircle the two young lovers in a way that resembled the great trees that encircled and protected the Republic of Reason. The king asked that the director be helped to his feet, and with the sound of his voice, the squirrels left the director and joined their comrades on and around the great old gate and in the circle around the soon-to-be new royal couple. Only the director and the king seemed to notice that the carved squirrels in the great old gate were missing. With this, the king turned to the director to ask for his daughter's hand, and under the circumstances, the director wisely agreed. The crowd cheered louder than ever, and the children danced about imitating the squirrels. And so the six-month engagement and construction of the new northern gate began. Ah, such a heavy sigh interrupted my great-grandmama's birthday story. What is it, I asked? No answer. Please don't stop now. What happened to the new royal couple? Slowly she reopened her eyes and looked deeply into mine, and with a sense of mission began anew. Six months later, as the new clock tower struck nine in the morning, September 25th, 1903, the 100th anniversary of the first royal wedding at the old southern gate, the new northern gate was opened for the first time, and what greeted the welcoming citizens of reason was a spectacle they could not have possibly imagined. The throng of the multitude of people and animals waiting to enter was staggering, just in sheer numbers, but when the king signaled the trumpeteers atop the gigantic new shiny steel doors, and they answered his royal gesture with ear-rattling blasts from their trumpets, the Republic of Reason received a friendly invasion of a world of naturalists, travelers, adventurers, real estate developers, hunters, dignitaries, oil men, and, of course, curious tourists. They came on horseback, camelback, in huge carriages, several on elephants from India, and then great automobiles with bearded drivers. The huge wave of arrivals were directed and escorted by selected citizens of reason on the epic parade along Concert Way toward the old southern gate ten miles away, with circus entertainers leading the tumultuous gathering.
With all the performances, events, sights, and wonders along the way, it was a parade that was expected to last until dusk, just in time for the young king and his bride to be wed in the glow of pre-sunset, and to have their union celebrated with hundreds of fireworks that would light up the sky for hours thereafter. It would be a glorious bridge uniting the old with the new, and with the new queen would come an heir born out of tradition to lead the Republic into a new, unknown world. But I'm getting ahead of myself, great-grandmama confessed, for just as the king had decided he would proceed ahead of the throng to review final wedding preparations with his attendants, the trumpeters split the air again with a musical fanfare fit for a king, and rightly so. For as the king turned to see what had caused such a musical proclamation without his ordering it, in rolled King Edward VII of England, in an enormous carriage bedecked with more jewels than the entire royal treasury of reason could boast, pulled by eight magnificent horses of obvious superior breeding. The king of reason was, of course, honored and pleased, but most surprised. Yet this moment passed quickly, as shortly behind the king of England, the young king thought he recognized a man on horseback. The familiar-looking presence became ever more so, with each step of his anxious steed straining against his mighty hold on its rein. He had the look of a man in command, and he was followed both by a larger-than-life automobile and an iron machine of some kind with what looked like a cannon sticking out of it. Behind that, at least a hundred men in uniform marching in perfect columns. As the horsemen rode further within reason, those closest to the king asked, "'Who is he, sire?' The king, although young in years, spent much of his time reading about the outside world, especially of the great powers across the great water, which he now knew was called the Atlantic Ocean. Seeing the monocle convinced him, and he whispered to his attendants, It is the American president, Theodore Roosevelt, a man who loves and respects nature and the wild as much as we revere it. He is most welcome in our republic. All began to cheer as the American leader dismounted to pay his respect to the king, and then gestured an offer to the king to ride with him in his splendid automobile. With one condition, the young but wise king responded, Yes, your majesty, what else may I offer, asked the president, that your rolling box with the cannon remain outside the walls of my kingdom. With a loud, boisterous laugh and through a grin a mile wide, President Roosevelt shouted, Bully! And so it was ordered. What a day this had become, the young king thought as he rode with the great leader from across the ocean, and how wonderful it would be to have his wedding be the seal of so great a marriage of past and future. Later, after the vows were mutually promised, the loving kiss completed, and the fireworks streaking across the heavens, the king spoke to his people and all their guests of peace, freedom, and love for all here present, both seen and unseen, happily ending with, Now on to the great wedding feast. As the royal carriage transported the new queen and her king and husband to the royal feast, she asked, What do you know of this American president, my king? King, I know his love for trees, mountains, lakes, and free open territory equals our own. But please go on, my husband, the new queen encouraged. But 
He loves killing wild animals, the king whispered softly. After a moment of confusion and shock at the inconsistency, the new queen pronounced, Then you have much to teach him. The pride in her smile bolstered young King Torben as much as the memory of the line of kings and queens before him, all married at the great southern gate of his kingdom. The next seven days of celebration went by all too quickly, as time was now of some consequence, and little by little all of the heads of state, dignitaries, and most of the visitors had departed, all except the oil men and real estate developers, who had been in huddled meetings with the director of tourism and real estate development, and, of course, the committee of the whole, for most of the seven days of celebration within reason time, they said, was of the essence. Although King Torben and Queen Elise knew it was inevitable that her father and the Committee of the Whole would insist on more and more changes in the Republic of Reason, for now they were lost in their love for each other and their desire to continue the line of royalty with an heir. It proved to be quite a challenge with two bitter disappointments, but finally on October 30th, 1905, an heir was born to the King and Queen of the Republic of Reason. But it was a girl, beautiful and loved truly, but a girl nonetheless. Never in a hundred years had there not been a king of the Republic. The queen was worried about the future of her child, but King Torben reminded her that this was the great period of change for the Republic, a time of rediscovering and redefining itself to an ever wider and expanding world beyond its great circle of trees. So, as both proud father and wise leader, King Torben announced that his daughter would be named after the most courageous woman he knew, his wife, and recognized for now as a rightful heir to his throne. The people of reason loved their king and his traditions, and with their cheers and prayers, they were delighted to love their new princes as they did her mother, Queen Elise II. None, however, were as delighted as the director of tourism and real estate development. The great lady in the chair under the tree stopped her story now and bade me go home and write down all I could remember of it, for the writing and rereading of it will keep me alive and will lead you to your own discoveries. With that she gave me a sealed envelope, adding that you will know the right time to open it, but not today. And then our last birthday visit was over. I was torn between wanting to stay and racing home to write down all I could remember in my journal, a journal I had started just for her and me on my tenth birthday. However, as I could see she was tired, I kissed her gently on the cheek and made my way back to the large house that still held such fascination for me. It wasn't until I got to the veranda that I realized something and quickly turned to see that I had just walked through a yard filled with white squirrels dancing all about the great lady in the chair under the tree. Epilogue Now ten years later, somewhere high in the hills of Bavaria, I think I still continue recording my search in my journal, starting more than a quarter of a century ago. 
It's not that I expect to find a Shangri-La, but having opened the sealed envelope on my 30th birthday, I am positive that the Republic of Reason existed, and that I was blessed with the opportunity to share the last years of its last princess, who undoubtedly has returned to the place where time is of no consequence. Uh -huh.